evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. When it comes to employment opportunities, wages, even health care, black women are the least protected group in this country. So it comes as no surprise then that black women also suffer disproportionately when it comes to them wearing natural or culturally inspired hairstyles. And while Title VII prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and gender, Title VII does not protect black women from discrimination resulting from a decision to wear their hair naturally. This means that if a black woman decides not to chemically process her hair and wear it natural, and her employer fires her because of her decision to wear her hair in its natural state, she has no protection under federal law. And race-based hair discrimination does not just affect black women in the workforce. This type of discrimination can also affect black men and black girls and boys in school. Fortunately, advocates, legislators, lawyers, and scholars are pushing for a change in the law and state legislatures are responding. On July 3rd of this year, California became the first state to enact the Crown Act, which was introduced by California State Senator Holly J. Mitchell. Crown stands for Creating a Respectful and Open Workplace for Natural Hair Act. And the California Crown Act makes it not only unlawful for employers and schools to ban natural and protective hairstyles African descendants commonly wear, but it also recognizes that these grooming policies that discriminate constitute racial discrimination. On this evening's show, we're going to talk about the harms associated with race-based hair discrimination and the efforts to enact the Crown Act throughout the country. And we're delighted to have joining us for this discussion Professor Wendy Green. She is a professor of law at Drexel University Thomas R. Klein School of Law in Philadelphia. Professor Green is one of the nation's leading scholars, if not the leading scholar, on the grooming code discrimination, and she served as a legal expert for the California Crown Act, testifying before the California State and Assembly Judicial Committees. Professor Green, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I want to first start by asking you how you became interested in this issue of natural hair discrimination. Sure. Well, there are a lot of different reasons, but I will just give you one <laughs> or maybe a couple. Uh, my childhood aspiration really was to become a civil rights lawyer. And my main goal in doing so would be to combat racial, ine racial inequality and other forms of injustice affecting vulnerable and marginalized populations. And while I was in law school, I uncovered that federal civil rights laws like Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which were designed to bring about equal and full inclusion of people of color in workplaces and in other spaces, were being interpreted in ways that were really doing the exact opposite. 
federal court decisions and civil rights cases that challenged bans against African descendants' natural hairstyles as well as their protective hairstyles was one of those areas where I saw a systematic and unlawful form of race-based inequality being maintained under the law. So when I pursued a career as a law professor, I endeavored to give voice to those who suffered racial discrimination on the basis of hair and other characteristics, and also to really illuminate those real-world or real-life consequences. So in the process, my hope in my legal scholarship and my teaching and also in service activities was really to provide practical solutions that would ultimately overturn nearly 40 years of federal precedent that failed to treat natural hair discrimination as race discrimination, except in the cases of Afros. So when you say in the cases of Afros, can you talk about those factual scenarios that would give rise to protection and how the courts contrasted that with other, say, natural hair situations or protective styles? Sure. So with the federal civil rights cases that challenged natural hairstyles, some of the first cases really came about, uh, they were being initiated by black women who were challenging bans against natural hairstyles like braids and, and also um, afros. And so what the courts did is that they created what I call a hair-splitting distinction between afros and hairstyles that flow from afros like braids, twists, and locks. And under the federal jurisprudence, they applied what we know is, as what we call in the legal world the immutability doctrine that you might be familiar with. And under this immutability doctrine, the idea is that uh, uh, race discrimination is only discrimination flowing from immutable or unchangeable characteristics or characteristics that are very difficult to change um, or characteristics that you're born with. Or, I, or hypothetically characteristics that only those who are African descendants would possess, which really are none. And this is why I call it a legal fiction. But nonetheless, um, what he did with this immutability doctrine is applied it to these natural hair discrimination cases and more broadly grooming code discrimination cases and said that Afros are an immutable racial characteristic of blackness. Therefore, discrimination on the basis of an Afro is unlawful race discrimination. However, the moment that you lock, braid, or twist that Afro, then magically it's no longer race discrimination. Those types of hairstyles are considered what the courts call cultural mutable or changeable characteristics that are outside of the scope of federal civil rights protections against race discrimination. Well, Wendell, when, when you talk about uh, Afro, c can you be a little more descriptive about exactly what you mean, uh, if you mean just wearing the hair natural, or is this the uh, classical Angela Davis type uh, Afro from the 1960s? Well, you know, that's a really interesting question. I don't have pictures of all of the litigants who wore the Afro. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, that's something that the court never really talks about in terms of the size of the Afro or the, the exact dimensions of the Afro. The idea is that it would be, you know, a hair texture or a hairstyle that would be, say, the naturally curly or, or, or tightly curled or tightly coiled um, is the idea behind the Afro. Uh, the court never really goes into a lot of detail or any detail for that matter in terms of, you know, sort of the size and the width of the Afro, and at what point, you know, possibly the Afro may be something that could be subject to regulation. 
So can you talk about why this type of discrimination is so harmful to uh, black women, um, also black men who might be in that situation, and children who might be disciplined at school for wearing uh, these types of hairstyles? Right. So there are lots of different harms. What we've seen in these cases involving bans against natural hairstyles in workplaces as well as in schools and other spaces, oftentimes uh, the policies may not say that, you know, natural hairstyles, you know, specifically are discriminated or are, are banned. But uh, oftentimes these policies will call uh, uh, hairstyles that are distracting or extreme or excessive and unkempt and therefore bar or interpret those stats, those policies to, to, to bar natural hairstyles like locks, braids, twists, and afros. So the language in and of themselves is very stigmatizing when you're calling children as well as workers' hair, natural hair, the way in which it grows, unkempt and distracting and extreme. And also on the other sides of it, when we think about um, there are really acute harms as it relates to African-descendant women and girls. Uh, when we ban natural hairstyles. So what I have argued is that these natural hair bans, in essence, impose what is what I deem a straight hair expectation or mandate. And many of us are aware of the types of things that black women and girls engage in to, to achieve a straightened hairstyle. So, for example, you know, many women and girls are engaging in toxic chemicals, applying toxic chemicals to our hair in order to maintain straight hair, as well as extreme heat styling, wigs and weaves. And these are very time-consuming time to maintain as well as expensive. Oftentimes with chemical relaxants, we will uh, suffer through chemical burns on our scalps. We also endure, you know, temporary and permanent scalp damage as well as hair loss. And there are also some other invisible harms, is what I call them, as it relates to chemical relaxants. So there's research that indicates potential correlations between chemical relaxants and other hair products and the higher rate of developing uterine fibroids, hormone-related infertility, and more aggressive forms of breast and uterine cancer. And similarly for black girls, we're seeing that uh, there's research that indicates a possible linkage between chemical relaxants and increased hormonal activity amongst African-descendant girls. So these are just some of the invisible harms that natural hair bands, i.e. straight hair expectations, uh, uh, impose upon black girls and women. You also talk about, uh, I think, in, in, in a couple of the articles that uh, uh, that you've written about uh, uh, African-American uh, women uh, having to change their hairstyle or feel that they must change their hairstyle much more often than do uh, whites, uh, which adds to the, uh, to the cost uh, necessary for them to maintain this so-called acceptable hairstyle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. There have been cases and incidences whereby uh, black women have been told or instructed to change their hairstyles in ways in which the supervisor perceives as attractive or as professional or, or appropriate um, or beautiful, right? And so uh, one case in particular is Pitts versus Wild adventures we have a black woman who you know wore her hair in one natural hairstyle one day to work and the employer actually her supervisor told her you know i don't really like that hairstyle you need to to wear something pretty 
So she, she decides that she's going to change her hair into something she feels is pretty. And that pretty hairstyle happens to be twists. And in that instance, the, the supervisor, again, did not like the hairstyle and instructed her to change her hair again. And she refused to do so. So ultimately what happens is that the, the employer decides to impose a grooming policy that uh, actually mandates that if employees with natural hairstyles like locks and braids and twists have to cover their hair with, with um, a, a head covering, uh, for example, like with a hat. With a hat. So uh, there's, that's one example. We also have another example where we have black women who have donned blonde hair, for example. And in those instances, you know, supervisors have also told them to change their hair color to something that is professional or, or in one case, they actually say you have to, black women can't have blonde hair. So you need to change your hair in accordance to how, how you're born. And so that's, you know, the only thing that you can infer from that is that you have to change your hair from a humanly natural color as blonde to something that is brown or black. And in one instance, we did have a black female employee who colored her hair multiple times in order to try to comply with this instruction. And ultimately, she was just so humiliated and, and demeaned that she, she terminated her employment. So, um, Professor Green, the the situation where you had uh, the the woman, African American woman, who dyed her hair blonde, could she have not raised a claim? And maybe she did r- raise a claim, like a straight Title Seven claim, because if you have a white woman who's able to uh, dye her hair blonde, um, she would not be subject to that, you know, that that policy that was imposed. Um, was that an, a viable option for that person? Right, absolutely it was. Because she did have what we know as comparator evidence or that evidence of differential treatment um, based upon race. And so in that case, she actually did have evidence that the employer allowed white women to be able to the, to wear their hair as they so chose and to be able to color their hair in lots of different uh, colors or, or humanly natural hair colors. And they were not being punished or subject to regulation. So she that actually ended up being a successful case um, in the fact that she was able to pursue her race discrimination claim under Title VII. However, when you don't have that comparative evidence or you don't have evidence of that differential treatment, say, uh, between black employees and non-black employees, then this is where the immutability doctrine has been applied. And what the courts will say is that out the gate, you don't have a, a plausible claim of race discrimination because uh, hair color is an immutable characteristic it's some, or is not an immutable characteristic. It's something that can be changed and is a function of choice. And, you know, the, the other examples that you mentioned kind of underscore this point about uh, Eurocentric views of beauty. So, you know, uh, when a woman is told, an African-American or a black woman is told, you need to change your hair so that it looks pretty. Um, well, what's pretty to one person may be different than what's pretty to another. And, and if the, the sense of beauty is tied to um, Eurocentricity, then y- y- you're in the situation where, um, as you noted, uh, black men and women and children are stigmatized because what they might see as beautiful based on their uh, cultural viewpoint may not be deemed as such according to the Eurocentric viewpoint. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Excuse me. Um, 
Absolutely. So what we see here is that, you know, really in trying to maintain the straight hair expectation, it really is very much racialized and gendered and sometimes even colored in nature. And, um, and so the idea that we're, we're to conform to, say, uh, white standards of beauty and white standards or Eurocentric notions of attractiveness, and um, that can be extremely exhausting and challenging. Um, as you can see, it's time-consuming. It's psychologically and emotionally um, distressful as well. And so um, um, and these, these grooming standards are very much subjective in nature, or at least the, the interpretation of them are very much subjective in nature. And so what we're seeing oftentimes is that black women and girls and boys, as well as men, um, are very much sort of subject to, you know, these arbitrary and subjective ideals of what is professional, what is appropriate, what's attractive, what's handsome, and so forth, and are having to shift um, consistently the ways in which they are um, adorning their crown in order to conform to these, to these subjective ideals. Mm-hmm. that are based upon Eurocentric norms. And on the flip side, interestingly, with the black, the blonde hair cases, is that, you know, it really, these cases really create a very narrow space for black women and girls to adorn their hair. Because on one side, if it's too so-called black, i.e. if you're wearing natural hairstyles like locks and braids and twists and afros, and that may be considered to be too black in nature, um, then you are able to be uh, restricted. On the flip side, if the idea is that blonde hair is something that only white women can wear, and therefore if it's too white, then you can likewise be uh, restricted from from wearing that hair color uh, under federal civil rights law. Okay, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And we're talking with uh, Professor Wendy Green about uh, natural hair discrimination. Uh, We're going to take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue this uh, really thrilling discussion uh, here on the uh, Legal Legal Review. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for staying uh, with us. We are talking uh, this evening with uh, Professor Wendy Green, uh, who is a uh, professor of law at Drexel University, Thomas Klein School of Law in uh, Philadelphia. And she is the uh, leading expert on uh, grooming code uh, discrimination in this country, uh, focusing on uh, Title VII, of the uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Uh, But to start us back, uh, Professor uh, Green, can you talk a little bit about uh, Title VII and what it is, uh, what led the Title VII discussion into uh, hair discrimination? Sure. So Title VII of the 1964 Civil Civil Rights Act prohibits workplace discrimination on the basis of race, color, sex, national origin, and religion. 
And pretty shortly after the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed, we start to see, you know, some, some cases, an influx of cases that are challenging employers' regulation or prohibitions against natural hairstyles like afros and braids. And they're challenging it, uh, challenging these grooming policies under Title VII's prohibitions against race discrimination. And so very early on, we see uh, this, this demarcation between afros and, and braids under the law in the sense that afros or discrimination on the basis of afros uh, constitute race discrimination, but uh, discrimination on the basis of of, of hairstyles that may flow from an Afro-like hair texture, like braids and twists and locks, are, are treated as outside of the scope of, of Title VII's prohibitions against race discrimination. Um, and there are a lot of different reasons as to why the, why the federal courts get there, but that's essentially what happens is, is that we start to see some litigation, some really important litigation, challenging you know, natural hair discrimination as a form of race discrimination in, in large part because we don't have any other types of federal civil rights act that uh, federal civil rights protections that would really, you know, specifically deal with appearance discrimination or discrimination on the basis of, of different types of appearances. And and we'll talk about uh, the states kind of taking the lead in terms of enacting civil rights legislation that that will provide protection. But but I wanted to ask you. So Title VII at this point does not. Do you think that there's a chance that Title VII will be amended or um, interpreted in such a way that it will cover race-based hair discrimination when we're talking about something other than afros? Sure. So I do definitely have great hope <laughs> that uh, the, the Civil Rights Act of 64 will be interpreted in a way that really brings about a broader definition of what is race. And so that's really at the heart of these cases is what is race? And so what I've argued is that race is not a biological construct. It is a social construct and that our, our interpretation of race uh, needs to really try to embrace uh, a more expansive and really realistic idea as it relates to race, that it is not a biological or inheritable or genetic construct, but rather it's very much constructed uh, by society, by law, as well as other political actors. So I definitely think that it's going to be interpreted in that way, and it already has been on some level. We do have some federal courts or federal judges, um, at least in dissenting opinions, that have um, embraced this notion of race as a social construct for the purposes of uh, Title VII's um, protection and um, are seeing, are starting to see, we have three federal judges, in fact, who did author a dissenting opinion not too long ago that did perceive discrimination on the basis of natural hairstyles like locks as a form of racial discrimination and mainly could reflect a form of racial stereotyping. So really it's just a matter of, you know, a majority of, uh, of judges in a particular circuit to take on that definition and basically agree with some of the things that I have uh, argued in my, in my legal scholarship. And, and so when we think about the federal courts, uh, of course, the, the makeup of the courts and those judges and justices that have been appointed by the various presidents, are you concerned about um, the, the appointment of judges that might be less inclined to view the definition of race in a, in a broader way that would encompass this type of discrimination? 
Well, I think it's, it's definitely key. You know, obviously the, the judges who are going to be appointed and therefore who will interpret our federal civil rights laws, we definitely want to ensure that they are not interpreting the law in a way that is so restrictive that it doesn't actually effectuate the goals and the aims of our civil rights legislation, like Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And we've already seen that over the past 40 years, very restrictive interpretations that, you know, pretty much, you know, limit kind of the scope of protection in some very interesting and honestly in some harmful and in and, and, and quite puzzling kinds of ways. So for those of us who are very much politically engaged, we definitely need to keep our eye open as it relates to, you know, federal court, court appointments. And we also have to keep our eyes open on those state court, say, appointments and elections as well, because they too, uh, those state court judges also are are empowered with the, the uh, empowered with the power to interpret not only state anti-discrimination laws, but also federal anti-discrimination laws. You know, uh, Professor Green, the uh, Rogers case, Rogers versus uh, American Airlines, uh, I think that was decided in, what, 1973 or so, uh, really kind of set the legal framework uh, for this uh, hair discrimination discussion uh, within the uh, legal context at a time when uh, there was not the same, I guess, uh, widespread use of locks and braids uh, that we have uh, today. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you see the court going back uh, at this time to undo the legal foundation that uh, was uh, articulated in, in the Rogers case? Right. That's an excellent question. So we have EEOC versus Catastrophe Management Solutions, which is a case out of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. And the EEOC took on that case on behalf of Chastity Jones, an African-American woman who donned locks, blonde locks, in fact. And she was extended a job offer. And that job offer was rescinded because she refused to cut off her, cut off her lot as a condition of employment. And so the EEOC took on that case. And, and, and essentially what they did when they took on that case, they were trying to overturn that Rogers versus American Airlines decision and sort of the progeny of cases that have applied Rogers versus American Airlines and that immutability doctrine that I spoke to earlier. And, um, and so unfortunately, so what the EEOC did is that they did challenge uh, this locks ban in that workplace as intentional race discrimination, and unfortunately, the Eleventh Circuit decided that um, that that grooming policy did not um, did not violate the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and in particular Title VII, and that uh, the ban against locks is not race discrimination. However, they fortified what we see in Rogers versus American Airlines by saying that discrimination on the basis of Afros does constitute race discrimination. And what is even more interesting about that case is that for the first time, you see a court really trying to make an even more uh, stringent distinction uh, between natural hairstyles. And so they called Afros a hair texture and called uh, locks or any kind of hairstyles that flow from an Afro hairstyle. 
So hair texture is protected according to the court as uh, or discrimination on the grounds of say, uh, an immutable hair texture like afros is unlawful race discrimination. But anything flowing from that would be considered, again, cultural mutable characteristics that are not protected against or discrimination not protected against. So, yes, so the EEOC did try to overturn Rogers versus American Airlines and the mutability doctrine and the distinction under it. Um, And I do believe that we will see some more cases that will actually bring about opportunities to try to to overturn this pretty restrictive interpretation of our civil rights statute. Well, can you can you, I guess, offer a guess as to why or how? Uh, the EEOC moved to the point of recognizing uh, that uh, hairstyle uh, with uh, African-American women constituted uh, discrimination on on the same level as texture, while the the court has been resistant to to accept that, uh, that determination from the EEOC. Sure. Well, there are a lot of different reasons um, that could possibly uh, really help to explain the federal jurisprudence versus the EEOC's interpretive ideas. And so one of them is, you know, this idea about race and race being a biological construct. And so we see in a lot of federal civil rights uh, jurisprudence that federal courts are really very hesitant to acknowledge that race is not a biological or inheritable or genetic uh, construct and um, are very um, wary and maybe uncomfortable to some degree in thinking of race more broadly as a social construct without any biological determinant. And that's in a big part because, you know, in, in our history and even today, we still very much view race as something that is inheritable, that's biological and genetic in nature. And it's very challenging, even for those of us who understand that race um, has no uh, uh, biological component whatsoever, that it's very challenging for people to think of race as something that might be socially constructed, something that's not fixed or stable, and something that's possibly quite fluid in, in ways in which we might think about it in terms of gender identity, too, right? So that's one of the reasons why I think that we see, uh, that I've argued that federal judges have not really interpreted our federal civil rights statutes, and in particular race discrimination protections, um, more broadly and more expansively to really reflect the reality of what is race and how it is operating, how discrimination on the basis of race operates. Another part of it is that, you know, at the heart of these cases is that there is a very strong component um, or alignment with employers and employer prerogative as it relates to grooming regulations and appearance expectations. And so there is sort of this, you know, balancing act that we definitely have to take into consideration when deciding these cases that, A, we're balancing one's right to be free from racial discrimination, one's right to equal employment opportunities, um, one's right to be able to freely express themselves as they see fit or as they may choose versus, you know, an employer's prerogative to regulate their their workers uh, as it relates to their appearance and grooming and what they see, uh, what they see fit with, with respect to that. And fortunately, um, 
we don't have to wait for the federal courts to or Congress to make changes to Title VII because there's been some movement on this issue in the states. And so um, the you know state of California, and you were no doubt instrumental in um, explaining and uh, enlightening the legislators on the issues around um, hair discrimination, racial hair discrimination. Can you talk about um, the Crown Act, the California Crown Act, and, and when did you become involved in that? And can you talk about the process uh, that you were involved in in getting this act uh, actually passed within the state? as the legal expert for the California Crown Act. And as you mentioned before, in that capacity, I testified before the, the Senate and the House or the Senate and the Assembly Judiciary Committees um, on behalf of the Crown Act. And so the Crown Act is the first statewide uh, legislation that prohibits discrimination on the basis of natural as well as protective hairstyles and treats that discrimination as a form of race discrimination in schools and in workplaces. What is really quite instrumental with this act is not only does it treat race, treat natural hair discrimination as race discrimination, but it also defines race. And so for the first time, we see an anti-discrimination law actually defining what is race, and they define race as uh, characteristics or traits that are historically associated with, with race inclusive of, but not limited to, natural and protective hairstyles like locks, twists, braids, and bantu knots. So this is really important because it actually responds to this, this gap of statutory protection that we see in the federal realm and, and, and really basically clarifies for all of us that race is, um, uh, constitutes something broader, a notion broader than, or an idea broader than, say, um, say immutable, fixed, stable characteristics like arguably skin color, but we can be discriminated against on the basis of, say, other types of characteristics like hair color, hair texture, um, and even possibly our dress, um, and, and it amounts to race discrimination. So as long as you're able to demonstrate that it's historically associated with a particular racial group. So I was surprised, happily surprised when I when I read that uh, this act was passed unanimously in both chambers uh, before going to the governor to be signed. And I. Um, yeah. How were you all able to accomplish that? So because what you're talking about uh, you know, those of us who are African-American, who are black, we, we are, you know, intimately familiar with these issues. And I can think of no um, black person, particularly black women, who n have not experienced being in a situation where you have felt pressure to present yourself in a particular way so that you are um, more readily accepted. Um, but you had to convince uh, you and, and those others who worked diligently to make sure that the act was passed had to uh, convince and to explain to legislators, the majority of which I'm sure are not, you know, African-American women who are intimately familiar with it, that this this made a lot of sense and that there was a need for protection. How did you go about doing that? 
Well, right. Well, I will have to tell you, it was, you know, quite masterful on the part of, you know, Senator Holly J. Mitchell, who you mentioned before, who introduced the Crown Act into the legislature. And also there are a lot of um, women, and namely black women, as well as women of color, who were very actively involved in promoting the Crown Act and ensuring it's really successful. And like you said, a passage without opposition, without any no votes on any of the levels of the legislative process. And so I definitely have to give, you know, a lot of props, you know, obviously to Senator Senator Holly J. Mitchell, who adorns lots. She has um, blonde uh, locks or blondish brown locks. Uh, we also have, um, you know, Leah Barrows and Delilah Clay, who are both African-American women, lobbyists who too adorn locks who were instrumental in making sure that uh, we were able to secure the, the passage of this legislation without any um, uh, opposition on the record and, and, and alongside me as, as well as, as an expert who, who um, testified in support of the Crown Act was a loctician and community active, activist Akila Hatchet Fall. And so we had all of these um, and really very much led a, a movement, if you will, led by uh, women, but in particular women of color and more specifically African descendants women who who adorn natural hair and who could also speak not only from a personal place but also from a professional place as it relates to the natural hair discrimination and its harmful consequences and effects and and really be able to to you know demonstrate that you know our hair should not uh, play any role in our ability to, and then it does not play any role in our ability to perform our jobs effectively and competently, and that we really should be focusing on what's in our heads and not what's on top of our heads. All right. We're, you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we've been talking with law professor Wendy Green, who is a professor of law at Drexel University Thomas Klein School of Law in Philadelphia. And uh, we should mention that she is working on a book titled Free the Hair, Locking Black Hair to the Civil Rights Movement, which will be out uh, very soon. Um, We'll have to take a quick break, but we hope you'll stay with us. We will be right back. back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Professor Wendy Green, who is a law professor at Drexel University Thomas Klein School of Law in Philadelphia. And she is one of the leading, if not the leading expert on racial hair discrimination and uh, the Crown Act. Um, Wendy, right before the break, we were talking about, you were talking about the efforts on the part of those advocating for the Crown Act in California and how successful those efforts were. And I know that there are other states that are looking into um, passing similar legislation. Can you talk about those other states that are considering a Crown Act of their own? Sure. So we have um, New York, 
New York State that actually uh, passed a Crown Act as well and signed into law just a week after California signed uh, their California Crown Act into law. We also have New Jersey where we have a Crown Act being introduced there uh, late in the session, last session. We too have Kentucky and Michigan and Tennessee who are on board to, or who have recently, we have representatives who have recently introduced, uh, not maybe specifically Crown Act, but parallel legislation like the Crown Act that we see in California and New York and New Jersey. And so in North Carolina, I know that there are, um, I've spoken with uh, lawyers, judges, um, advocates, uh, natural hair enthusiasts, who are interested in, in having uh, the similar legi- legislation here in North Carolina. So let me ask you from, I guess, using California as a, as a model, how long did the entire process take from, I guess, the advocacy efforts to introduction to the bill um, to successful passage and signing by the governor? Sure. So actually, it was a pretty quick process. And, uh, and it, of course, it's going to depend on everyone's, you know, particular, very specific, you know, legislative processes in that particular state. But with California, it was introduced early this year um, in January or February, if I'm not mistaken. And then we had a Judiciary Committee uh, hearing for the Senate side in early March and then um, some other committee hearings in, in, in the process. And then a final Judiciary Committee hearing in June before the, the assembly and um, a final vote just within a, a week or two after that. Um, so basically, you would talk about like five to six months um, until the California governor, Governor Newsom, signed it into law. New York was different. Uh, because it was introduced, uh, I believe, in in April, and it was uh, passed in May. And then we have, um, I think it was May or June, I can't remember now, I'm sorry, uh, May or June, and then it was um, signed into law in July. So a much shorter window in terms of the legislative process, but part of that is because there weren't any um, uh, hearings or, you know, the kind of extensive hearings that we see in the California process. So it does depend on, you know, what types of hearings and meetings and, and engagement that you may have to have throughout the process in terms of the length. But, you know, California gives us about a six-month window depending on your state, and then New York, as you see, a, a, a very different process, and it took less than uh, less than two months. Can you talk about the uh, level of community engagement uh, that surrounded uh, the passage of any of the Crown Acts uh, in the uh, various states that you've worked with? Right. So with the California Crown Act, we had many, many partners who sponsored, organizational partners who sponsored the legislation and, um, you know, so many different organizations from that, that kind of like came from labor, uh, labor and employment law sectors, as well as um, uh, black women's organizations and sororities as well, like Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. We also, in the links. Uh, the Links, which is an African-American um, uh, women's 
uh, group who to supported the the legislation. So you had lots of different organizations um, and associations, from say the professional to civic organizations that. Uh, supported the Crown Act in California and really came out and publicly supported it in in various uh, legislative hearings. Um, in terms of the broader sort of public support, I can say personally that in engaging, you know, those who follow me on social media and who have just been following uh, the Crown Act more generally, whether it be me or just the, the news reporting around it, I have received so much support from those individuals. And, and I want to kind of go back a little bit, too, in terms of the support that has been uh, garnered. It's not only about the California Crown Act, but we also have to, to, to be clear that New York City was one of the leaders in terms of uh, bringing about enforcement guidance, and that's New York City Commission on Human Rights. And they actually introduced uh, or codified, if you will, enforcement guidance that treats natural hair discrimination on the basis as racial discrimination, not only in schools and in workplaces, but also in public accommodations. And that enforcement guidance came about in, in February of this year, and that generated a lot of public awareness and public support for not only, say, enforcement agencies like the Human Rights uh, commission in New York City, but others like the EEOC enforcement agencies really garnered a lot or generated a lot of support there and public awareness around natural hair discrimination and the fact that it should be treated as race discrimination under our civil rights statutes, whether they be municipal or state level or on the federal level. Now, we haven't talked about it, but can you kind of uh, relate this now to men? Uh, and sure. uh, discrimination that uh, that they encounter uh, in the uh, uh, employment or school uh, context. Right. So we have African-American men and boys who likewise are discriminated against on the basis of their natural hairstyles like locks and braids and twists. And in some instances, you know, their haircuts uh, just um, yesterday I received a report about a federal civil rights lawsuit out of Texas where we have a young, you know, African American boy in in high school, high school student, male high school student who had, you know, you know some, you know, very popular designs in his in his faded haircut and um and we have educational administrators who told him that he would have to be suspended from school unless they they colored in the, the 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 marks in his hair with a uh, with a sharpie marker, <laughs> and and they did. I, I wish I were joking, and so they colored in his hair with a sharpie pen, and um and it, it was just humiliating and just and honestly it's just so distressing mm. to see that this is the kind of what I call hyper regulation that our, our children are enduring in school because of their natural hair. And so that's just one example of the kinds of, you know, uh, punitive forms, if you will, um, of, of enforcing these grooming policies that may prohibit not just simply natural hairstyles, but, uh, say, extreme or distracting uh, haircuts and hairstyles and hair textures in these grooming policies. 
Right. So that's just one example of it. We also see, you know, young boys, for example, in New Jersey, which was sort of the impetus for the New Jersey Crown Act, where we have the young man who, if he didn't cut off his locks on site during that wrestling match, Mm -hmm. he would forfeit the match. Mm -hmm. Right. So you are being excluded not only from your educational opportunities, um, but also from extracurricular activities as well, based upon, you know, your natural hairstyles or or even in the instance of the, the young man in Texas, you know, a, a, a faded haircut that happens to have a couple of designs in it. Yeah, we had a uh, an incident here in uh, North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh, uh, as a matter of fact, where uh, they had a uh, community pool. Uh, there was a rule that uh, you could not uh, use the pool uh, if your hair was uh, in locks or braids uh, because it uh, tended to clog up the uh, uh, pool system or the water system in the, uh, in the pool, which uh, provoked a, a huge outcry. Uh, and now the pool is co- closed down. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, and, I, and I mentioned that uh, for our audience uh, members who think that uh, the issues that you raise uh, are far away from North Carolina. They, they are here mm-hmm. with us and uh, present uh, with us uh, every day, and you never know when they will, uh, when they will pop up. Right. No, you're exactly right. And I think it's really important to, to even, you know, expand the conversation. It expands the conversation beyond schools and workplaces, which we most often hear about this form of race-based discrimination occurring, but it's also occurring in public accommodations, right? Like uh, in the instance that you're mentioning in North Carolina, and that, you know, we really should be thinking very uh, deeply about you know, allow or, or, or putting forth, you know, these protections um, or not just limiting these protections to schools and workplaces, but also expanding them to, to public accommodations like we see with the New York City Commission on Human Rights Enforcement Guidance. And to your point, another point about North Carolina is that you might be familiar with a more recent case. Uh, not as recent as the, it's a fairly recent case where we have a Charlotte Mecklenburg school employee that is um, currently suing the, the, the school district for racial harassment. And one of her allegations is that uh, several of her colleagues gathered together and formed a petition um, consisting of signatures from some of her white colleagues who thought her hair was unprofessional and inappropriate for the workplace. And in particular, she was wearing natural hairstyles. And so they, they got together and, and, and signed a petition <laughs> to, to try to get her to stop wearing her natural hairstyles because they perceived them as un- inappropriate and unprofessional. And so this is happening in all different types of spheres, and it's happening right in our, in our own back and front yards. And, you know, when you uh, one of the wonderful things about the momentum that this issue has uh, received or or has is that it's the exposure of the um, natural hair movement. Right. And so it's in the press. People are talking about it. You're seeing it in uh, magazines. You've got. Um, companies that are are uh, like Dove, for example, is supportive of this effort. 
because sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. So I, I remember uh, when I moved to North Carolina, I actually had locks when I moved here, and I was going to be practicing law in a small town. And I was told by um, some Southern family members that I needed to change my hair because I would not be able to uh, have a successful practice with locks. Um, uh, Professor Green, I know you, this has happened with you as well. Uh, students, law students, will come to me and ask me, uh, if they should change their hair before they take a law firm job uh, because a family member has told them you're not going to be successful wearing your natural hair or wearing your hair in that particular way. And I've had that conversation with both uh, young men and young women as well. And and so um, there sometimes we can uh, sabotage ourselves. Can you talk about um, how this issue and this advocacy has changed the view within the community itself. Sure, you're exactly right. It's, it's one of these issues of discrimination that I say it really is about equal opportunity discrimination, unfortunately, where it may not be about any particular uh, person of a particular racial group that's engaging in it. You know, African descendants also engage in the stigmatization and resulting discrimination on the basis of natural hairstyles because of, you know, just long-standing negative biases and stereotypes and perceptions as it relates to our natural hair texture and the cells that flow from it. And, I mean, we probably just don't even have enough time to talk about how that <laughs> even came about. But, you know, it's still a very much persisting, you know, bias and stereotyping and stigmatization as it relates to our hair that results in the discrimination. And, like I said, African descendants also engage in it, too. Um, and so what has happened with the natural hair movement, I think in so many ways, and there's so many people who are involved in it, uh, in terms of learning our hair again, right, really actually, or learning our hair at all, mm -hmm. because there's so many of us who have, who don't even know what our real hair texture, our natural hair texture even feels like, because we have, um, um, use chemical relaxants and hair straighteners, um, pressing combs, and so forth for as long as we can remember, right? So now we actually have, you know, products um, and techniques that are being shared, you know, worldwide. Uh, and this is one of the blessings, I guess, even though it can be a blessing or a curse, right? The Internet. <laughs> the blessing of the Internet and um, social media platforms to be able to educate uh, one another on how we can do these things in our homes and also how we can and have, uh, you know, be able to maintain our natural hair, um, healthily maintain our natural hair uh, with our, our um, chosen hair stylist, too. So all of these things are happening at the same time, and um, I really do believe that, you know, now having that access you know, um, to this information, to this education uh, has really helped to re redefine, you know, um, our, our engagement with our own, with this fundamental part of our identity and also being able to celebrate, you know, our hair diversity and to celebrate what uh, we're born with and, um, and really be able to, to, to um, encourage others to embrace this fundamental part of our identity without any kinds of restrictions and, and stigmas that may be associated with it. So we have about a, a minute left, but I wanted you to talk real quickly about your hashtag free the hair public awareness campaign and share a little bit about the book that you're working on. 
Sure. So hashtag free the hair is really just trying to reflect the movement for us to be able to wear our hair freely and as, and, 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 and to be able to wear our hair as we so choose, um, that we should not be defined, again, by what is on our on top of our heads and that we're able to, to really navigate society um, with a greater level of agency and autonomy and personhood. Um, and so it's under the broader umbrella of trying to combat appearance discrimination in workplaces and schools and other spaces. And I, as you can tell, it's a specific focus on uh, race-based natural hair discrimination that African descendants uh, largely and disproportionately suffer. The hair, the, the, the book, Hashtag Free the Hair, Locking Black Hair to Civil Rights Movement, is basic, basically a culmination of my over a decade now research and writing on natural hair discrimination and the ways in which it is race discrimination and uh, that we're suffering not only in the United States, but also around the world and how this issue connects to, to broader civil rights uh, movements and, and uh, legislation and litigation and advocacy um, and, and, and more broadly than that, even human rights uh, litigation and legislation and advocacy. So this is that's that's pretty much it in a, in a nutshell. And from that, we have the hashtag hashtag free the hair, which is being used internationally now um, to really signify uh, this movement to to embrace natural hair diversity, hair diversity more generally, and the freedom to be able to express our identities as we so choose and as we see fit. All right. Well, excellent. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we want to thank our guest, Professor Wendy Green, professor of law at Drexel University, Thomas R. Klein School of Law, and the author of forthcoming book, Hashtag Free the Hair, Locking Black Hair to the Civil Rights Movement. And of course, we'd like to thank you, as always, for listening to this show, taking time out of your Sunday evening. Uh, We hope you enjoyed it and that you learned something and that you will share this topic and this episode with your friends and family. If you have any questions or you want to reach out to us, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And as always, we are happy to announce that you can now find the show on iTunes in podcast form. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed and engaged.